Welcome to City Talks, a monthly podcast looking at the big issues facing UK cities and the latest thinking on urban policy. I'm your host, Andrew Carter, from the Think Tank Centre for Cities. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to this episode of City Talks. Today, my guest is Dr. Lucy Montague. Lucy is a senior lecturer at Manchester School of Architecture and program leader of the MA in Architecture and Urbanism. And she's the co-author of an excellent new book. Uh, her co-authors are David Rutland and Vicky Payne. And the book is called High Street, uh, How Our Town Centres Can Bounce Back from the Retail Crisis, published by the RIBA. Welcome to City Talks, Lucy. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for inviting me. So we're going to get into um, the book uh, and what it's all about and some of the issues that come out in it and some of the recommendations that you make. But the book is organised around 100 case studies. Um, 87 uh, case studies are about actual places. Then you've got uh, a series of case studies around online sort of high streets, as it were, and then four other examples. So just say a little bit about the 100. How should we think about them? How representative are they? They're in all the four countries of the UK. That's obvious. You can see that on the map in the book. But just say a little bit how we should think about the 100, what they represent, and then we'll get into the detail of findings and issues. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, obviously, it was important to us to have a geographic spread, but also to cover the range of different types of place that are impacted by the current environment. And that means, yes, physical retail, yes, high streets, but not only that, because you can't understand the full picture if you're only looking at one aspect. So the sample covered in total over 54,000 shops, which is 160 square metres of retail floor space. Overall, that's over 20% of all retail outlets in the UK. So it's a really quite substantial sample. Uh, And as you said, we sort of covered different geographic locations and online retail, but also different categories. So everything, including small cities, larger towns, out of town, uh, big cities, major cities, small towns and even villages uh, and the traditional high streets as well to get that really comprehensive picture. And a bit like said of the cities, you use a broad, I would say, inclusive definition of high streets, right? I mean, in a sense that it means different things to us, but we broadly know what we're what we're talking about when we when we're talking about high streets. But just say a little bit about about that, how what the term is actually covering and capturing. Yeah, this is quite an interesting debate you could have around that, really, isn't it? But it's not just the archetypal high street. Uh, things have evolved massively and it's all very in, interconnected web. Uh, our towns and cities are, of course, inherently complex uh, and interesting places, but you cannot take just one typology of the city, one high street, one traditional high street, and start to understand it without looking at all these other things. So we did uh, high streets as one of our categories, but also all other areas that have uh, retail representation, really. And there's a brilliant sort of historical you know, pictograph, I suppose, in some respects of high streets and you know where they came from historically, how they've evolved, how they've adapted, uh, you know, how they've sort of spread, I suppose, as a sort of principle, which I think is a really good. And Skipton comes up as an example of quite a, uh, quite an old high street stroke market area stroke exchange place that, you know, the modern Skipton high street is, you know, is, is still pretty much based on some of that, that, that older historical stuff, which can be 800, 900 years old. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Some of these are very enduring. Some of them are the product of sort of 1960s, 70s planning ideals. Uh, Some of them are product of 80s and 90s uh, policies, Uh, huge diversity of stuff. 
and I expect we'll get on to discuss it, but not necessarily much consistency about where those have been good or bad or successful or struggling in recent years. Yeah. And across the hundred, um, you're you're not looking at they're not hundred is successful places. They're not hundred struggling places. By definition, when you look across, you know, the 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 case studies, there is a mixture of places that are doing relatively well, even if they've struggled in the past, doing relatively well, some places that have done well in the past and are struggling now. So there, there is a variation in in performance as well. It's not like a hundred hundred case studies that illustrate best practice. It's not that. No, we were very determined not to write another best practice uh, guideline, to be honest. Thank you for that. Um, our suspicion was that it's just really far too diverse and various to, to do something of that nature, hence the 100, really, apart from the fact that 100 sounds good. Yeah. 100 allowed us to really capture the variety of stories. Our suspicion was that a lot of it depended on people, actually, and understanding who had done what in different places uh, and therefore why some places were doing really well, whereas others were doing, you know, were really struggling massively, undoubtedly, um, and try to unpick what the kind of trends were. What are the reasons behind the current crisis? How have we moved forward through other previous crises? Because there have been plenty of them uh, in order to really try and understand what we should be doing next. You know, essentially thoroughly diagnosing the problem before we start administering treatment. Yes, and part of the book, which... Uh, it is a really kind of clear-sighted view on the misdiagnoses of the problem, right? I mean, in the sense that I think you were rightly challenging of, you know, retail consultancies or retail planners that often misunderstand the nature of what's going on in places and then often propose a set of uh, solutions or answers that are misplaced, not only in the time, but also misplaced over time because they're not sufficiently resilient to be able to deal with cha uh, changing trends or changing patterns. Mm. Yeah, I think um, certainly it's quite a complex problem with long routes. The current crisis, it's, it's quite difficult really to find out what uh, caused that in particular. Previous ones have been more obvious. So understandably, there's plenty of advice that is perhaps not um, hugely evidence-based uh, and across lots of different disciplines as well. I mean, even going by our own backgrounds in um, design planning, sort of built environment consultancies, often we'd like to think we can design our way out of a lot of problems, but that's really not the case. And it's vital that people understand the mechanisms behind retail development, for example, the economic policies that affect the high street, uh, the way that retailers make decisions themselves as well, the property rental process, all of these sorts of things that are invisible when you're standing on the high street, but have a huge impact, if not, you know, the biggest impact on why they are in the state they're in. Yeah. And you deal with this brilliantly in, in the book, but you and I know, you know, there's a sense that all of this came to, to a head, you know, during the uh, the pandemic period, when everything, you know, in, as at least as conventional, everything changed, and but actually that isn't really the case in many respects. So just say a little bit about how you locate the pandemic. It, you know, was it really just shining a light on trends that were were in place and had been in place and kind of working their way through the system, you know, for at least a decade, if not two decades before, which I think is part of your part of your critique but you know it didn't start off and it certainly won't finish with the pandemic um period even though people think you know there's been quite a fundamental 
shift in terms of how high streets and our habits are, you know, have been informed by the pandemic period. So just say a little bit more about that. Mm. So I think, you know, especially the headlines around high streets, which are fairly frequent and a bit of a kind of permanent feature even, um, have tended to latch on to specific issues and wanted to identify them as the cause. But it's rather a lot more complex, unfortunately. I mean, the reason for the current crisis has been much debated. Um, when Mary Portis, what was it, about 10 years ago now, was appointed to lead the review into the future of Britain's high streets, she was dealing with the tail end of the 2008 financial crash, which obviously had a huge impact on retailers. Um, but the situation was already improving when she produced a report and sort of maybe 2007, 13 to 17, there was kind of moment of brief optimism in the retail world mm -hmm. um, and relative prosperity, increased consumer spending, more investment. Um, then in 2018, uh, 2018, the current retail crisis sort of actually came something as something out of a clear sky, uh, unconnected to sort of broader problems in the wider economy at that time. It is true that the level of online shopping had continued to rise. It's true that the 2017 business rates revaluation was a factor. Policies like minimum wage are pushing up, pushing up costs. Um, the pound was weak. Uh, we've had Brexit, increasing costs of imports, et cetera, et cetera. But none of that really explains the 2018 crisis, um, either individually or collectively. Um, you know, there's other things that have happened too, like um, asset stripping, reduced home ownership. Uh, trends towards work from home, reduced car ownership. All of these things had actually started before COVID, and some of them were really uh, were peaked because of COVID. I mean, the obvious one is like the online shopping because all but essential physical retailers were forced to close. Um, but the trends, all the trends actually existed before COVID. So that one in particular, we actually can't blame. Um, what seems to have happened is more that um, there's been a cumulative effect years of complacency and underinvestment that left a retail sector that was already really vulnerable actually and quite close to a tipping point and not able to um to survive another crisis so easily and, and we see you know in a sense very clearly we, we see this in other uh in other fields um you know the the degree of resilience because of the the accumulation of these issues places become relatively weaker over time and then essentially one more thing or the you know a, a another thing just just overwhelms the resilience and the ability to deal with that problem and also move on to something else and we've seen that in terms of you know the effects that um that no wage growth that we had essentially since the great recession what that did when we then had a cost of living crisis where you know prices went through the roof we were less we just had less and resilience in the system, individuals and households to be able to deal with that, which then means that people really struggle as a result of that. I guess it's a sort of similar scenario uh, or playing out in you know at a place level where accumulation over time, places are just less able to deal with the next thing or the whatever that might be. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And businesses less able to deal with it as well. Um, not just the kind of small businesses, but the major multiple retailers who were left in very vulnerable positions by things that started in the 2000s, like asset stripping. Debenhams was sold, for example, with no debt whatsoever, um, but then stripped of all its stores. Hasn't happened to just them, happened to quite a few where um, uh, private investors basically either remortgaged and uh, or 
or sold and released the properties back to those businesses, leaving them with high levels of debt, no ability to reinvest in their stores. You know, shareholders are happy because they got huge dividends paid out. But then once you hit another economic downturn, they're incredibly vulnerable. And the, the fact that like investment poured into those sorts of because yeah, I think you make the point in the book, investments kind of piled into some of these uh, these firms that were or companies that were based in and around our houses, almost like a you know they became uh, a very favorable asset class in their own right. Do, do you think that was an unintended consequence? I suppose because we'd had policy that was trying to orientate away from the out of town retail kind of focus and then bring it back into high streets, which then made the more favorable assets, which then attracted more investment, which then made they were over leveraged with them meant when, you know, when the when the tide went out, they were in difficult positions. I don't know. How do you how do you unpack all of that? Yeah, I I'm not sure that I can provide the evidence to support that theory necessarily. Um, certainly retail investment during periods of economic um success has been quite popular, including, of course, as lots of people know now for um uh, pension portfolios, but it's certainly not the case now. <laughs> now it's now there's incredibly low confidence, and you know, kind of current retail development models are not at all viable. So a lot of places are rethinking how that can work. Yeah, no, that is a good. And we'll come on to come on to sort of some of the your thinking around, and then the book around the new development models that are are needed. So, so what what one of the other trends that is increasingly discussed, much discussed, and again, it, it's kind of particularly given a, a COVID sort of lens, is the rise of online shopping, online retail, online commerce. And again, basically saying everybody's moved online, you know, that's why our high streets are struggling. Just say a little bit about the realities of that and actually the interplay between online and uh, and, and physical world kind of uh, commerce. What might surprise people is that the stake that online retailers have is actually dropping, continues to drop. Uh, and we expect it to stabilize probably somewhere around 25% of all sales. So it's a significant proportion, but it's perhaps not as dramatic as people would perceive it to be. The other thing that's really surprising is that omnichannel retailing, so retailing where you have a physical presence on the high street perhaps, and an online presence through Amazon, eBay, your own website, other ones, um, generates a halo effect. So places that have a physical shop somewhere, actually it drives more traffic to their online sales as well. So there's a lot of incentives at the moment um, for businesses to have that physical shop. And it's really a, a trend that's going to support the recovery of the high street in effect. You know, it's it's two-way. So you've got online businesses like Boohoo, even Amazon, who are setting up grocery stores and their Chinese counterparts, Alibaba, have done this on a much larger scale. They're relocating onto the high street. They're taking physical space for the first time. They see that as a good investment, which is a really interesting trend. You've got places showrooming, which is where they're not planning to do the physical any take any sales transaction in the store. They just have a physical unit so that you can touch and feel and look and get advice on the product, which builds confidence. And then from the flip side, I suppose, this isn't just something for major multiples. This is also an opportunity for independence where websites like Etsy, Discogs, Bookshop.org, various other kind of niche areas of retail allow independents to set up their own online presence fairly easily and therefore not be so dependent on footfall through, through their shop door. They also can reach a wider audience and have greater resilience. So... The surprising kind of conclusion actually is that 
although online looked like a terrible threat, it could actually be the saviour of the high street. You're very optimistic about high streets uh, in the book and at coming out of the back, not least, you know, which is great. I mean, I'm optimistic about them as well. Uh, but given all the doom and gloom, you know, the death of the high street, which we hear literally every day, it's an interesting, I think, right, but an interesting point. And it's, you're not just blindly optimistic, which is even even better. There is a rationality to the optimism. And in part, it's about longevity of these places, you know, their constant ability to adapt to varying degrees. So just say a little bit about, in a broad sense, your optimism and, you know, that high streets go through these periods. They come out of these periods much changed in some instances, but nevertheless, they kind of go on. And, and do you see any... Are there any limits to that optimism? Is that all high streets, some high streets, you know, what? I mean, just say a little yeah. bit about your optimism. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I'd say we're very optimistic, but maybe cautiously optimistic. Um, but certainly, you know, the, the, the history of high streets is strong when you think about it. We keep being told the high streets did. It's not happened yet. They survived the arrival of supermarkets in the 1950s. Uh, then the move to out-of-town development um, in the 80s, 90s of the free market policies. Then clone towns in the 90s, you know, we had that spread of homogenous retail across the country, couldn't tell one high street from another. Then the financial crash, 2008, as we've mentioned, all before the current crisis. And in each case, you know, then <laughs> it's been announced that this is the end, this is it, it's dead, and it never has been. And so we would, we would theorise that it also isn't it the end now either. But it is true, of course, that in each case, it's been an evolution of the high street, and the high streets we have recently are not the high streets of the 1950s. And, you know, to be entirely frank, they're never going to be either, because uh, society and economy and uh, force, global forces have moved on. Um but they evolve, they evolve. And what we're looking at at the moment now is not a death, but a very, very painful transition. Of course, not a quick one either. So we're not being optimistic saying this is all going to be sorted out in a couple of years. But there are lots of interesting trends emerging. There are lots of ways that different uh, places, you know, at a sort of local government level, uh, mm -hmm. as well as community figures, uh, very creative entrepreneurs and business owners um, are able to enact positive change. I mean, the decisions these people make can also have negative consequences as well, but it is possible to have positive impact. And there's also an opportunity, um, if I want to be optimistic, for a national level policy uh, changes to, to really make quite a big impact on the extent of recovery, the speed of recovery, uh, also how equitable the recovery is. Uh, because of course, the situation isn't the same. Uh, it's not ubiquitous across all places or across the whole country. Some places are struggling more than others. Savills have said we've got probably 40% too much retail space in the UK, which is huge, of course, absolutely enormous, frightening number. It might be a little bit overestimated because I think that's probably predicated on the assumption that we're going to relet the vacant spaces to more retail, um, which needn't necessarily be the case. And we'll maybe touch on that later. Um, but certainly it's going to be a big number. It's a big percentage. And some places will be disproportionately affected and it will be much more serious than others. So we're looking at, you know, post-retail high streets to some extent or another, high streets that have the very least less retail than they have done and how we manage that process going forward, understanding what the trends are anyway and understanding what the mechanisms are to improve the recovery. And is I, you, you just said it then in, towards the end, 
is that that's the I suppose that that's the big picture, right? Which is in the future, you think the next the, the next phase of ad- adaptation and change, whatever comes again, you know, in further cycles of adaptation. But the next cycle is about the extent to which retail in many places became over dominant and of a certain type and function and, and played a certain role. And the degree to which, you know, the next phase of readaptation or adaptation and change is to think about not just maybe not necessarily less retail, but different retail, but mm. also different uses more broader than retail coming back onto the high street because it is a back story. It's not just that, you know, sometimes this stuff was there before and then got pushed out um, in the past. Is that is that a kind of big, a big picture challenge? The challenge of change is for the next cycle. Yeah, absolutely, Andrew. That's one of our key recommendations um, to diversify, really. High streets, yes, but also town and city centres more broadly, because, of course, there's, it can be quite hard to distinguish between the two. Yeah. Um, his, historically, of course, our town and city centres weren't just about retail. That's something that came along the sort of latter half of the 20th century, and we all accepted it. But that's relatively recent in the, the grand scheme of how places develop. They used to be much more diverse in terms of types of use, and that is more generally diversity encourages robustness and resilience over time. So in terms of diversifying uses, um, we can look at examples like Stockport, where their big defunct Debenhams, which is a difficult bit of infrastructure to grapple with, and of course, is not unique to them. Lots of places will have the same or similar problem. They've strategically uh, decided to relocate their peripheral Stepping Hill Hospital to that in-town site um, and then fund that by selling the out-of-town Stepping Hill site for new housing. So sort of killing two birds with one stone there. And additionally, of course, the benefits of that mean that you've now got a public facility in a much more accessible location. You can meet some active travel objectives. You're also increasing footfall in the centre. So what ability there is to spend money uh, is happening in the town centre, supporting the businesses that are still there. So things like that can be incredibly strategic and clever, but the same, not everyone's going to have a hospital, they can relocate, but the same would be true of other things like council services, secondary schools, university campuses, uh, libraries, you know, venues, leisure facilities, new offices, housing. A lot of these things have become quite peripheral and pushed out. Um, partly due to planning policy, which hasn't resisted it, um, and you know other public policy levers. So, so those are things we really should be thinking about concentrating in our town, in and around our town centres. Now, you, you've got to shore up where that activity and that concentration, critical mass, is. So, it means one key thing is blocking out of town development going forward. We need strong planning policy, like we did in the nineties. None of the sort of investment we saw in retail and town centres in the 2000s would have happened without that really strong planning policy. So we've done it before. We know it works, uh, but it needs a clear steer um, at a national level, really, to do that. But then going to your other other point there about increasing the diversity of retail, this is another inherited factor that for a long time, um, town centres have been chasing the multiples. Their rankings, um, which is something that, of course, most of us wouldn't be too familiar with and their rankings as they compete with each other especially large towns and small cities have been entirely really driven by the presence of a few major multiples on their high streets so they have 
chase them. And they've, of course, in many cases, quite prominently offered large amounts of money to try and incentivize or retain them, uh, which often hasn't worked, sadly, either. Um, and really, of course, what's been very clear in, in the data is that in the latest crisis, the major multiples have been very vulnerable, partly through asset stripping and things we described earlier, but not only that. So, so they've when they've gone, they've left some of these places with a huge problem. Um, you know, they've lost their anchor stores in shopping centers, they're left with big infrastructure on their high street that's hard to adapt, not impossible, but hard to adapt. Um, so thinking about the way that you diversify your retail to also support, incentivize small businesses, independent startups is really critical. And we have seen in the data that the places that have a higher proportion of independence are faring much, much better in the current crisis. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you a little bit about independence because, uh, you know, they they feature prominently, but, but I think you deal with them in a in a in a matter of fact way rather than a sort of idealized way in terms of them at, at, which would get you to say not least because of the structural advantages that they sometimes offer and also if am I right am I right in the in the pit in the book on average is it over 50 percent of of any high street or not of nearly all high streets is independent is that right and in some places it can be up to 65 70%. So this idea you know, we, multiples are noticeable and seen but the reality of most high streets anyway are independent. Now what nature of the independence you touch on as well which is another interesting sort of dynamic about what kind of independence are there. But is that is that right? Have I am I am I remembering rightly? You are remembering rightly. Yes, our high streets are and this I think will surprise a lot of people are overwhelmingly independent anyway. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the reasons that, in fact, in terms of the vacancy league tables that we uh, generated, they're faring best of all places. The places that are struggling a lot more are malls, both in town and out of town, um, and and other locations. Online retailers are struggling too. But high streets, because they um, have a very high proportion of independents, actually quite resilient. It's worth noting that it's not the case that in independent retailers, small businesses are themselves inherently more resilient. They're actually very vulnerable. They usually have quite a small amount of capital behind them, carry huge debt. Um, so they are vulnerable. The difference is really that where one fails, there's almost always another willing to give it a go. So as a tool for regeneration at a local authority level, they really offer an opportunity. Um, and of course, so their vulnerability also means not just nurturing, incentivizing uh, new ones, but main maintaining those that you do have um, with, you know, tried and tested techniques, really business support, mentoring, access to finance, small grants and promotion, networking, these sorts of things. Um, so that, that should really be a main focus for economic development in, in any place at the moment. But yeah, as you said, also, we're not talking about this in a kind of sentimental way. Uh, we're not saying that, you know, it's just creative outlets and artisan um, boutiques, you know, bakeries, independent businesses are also beauty salons, uh, vape shops. The largest, uh, <laughs> the largest one in particular is um, convenience stores, in fact, um, which presents like the highest proportion. So the churn of independent, independent business is huge um, and it does need a lot of support, but the places that foster uh, at a sort of really um, 
good climate, a hospitable climate for independence will continue to be more resilient in the long run, rather than doing what is eventually the retail equivalent of putting all their eggs in the one basket of major multiples. Yeah, brilliant. So so carrying on that theme of, of independence, because it, it's so be interested to get your thought, because you've got some great examples. You talk about um, places like Bournemouth and what's going on with Bobby's, I think if that's right. And then also Sheffield, which actually is the first case study that you talk about. You get into the detail of some of the problems of high streets by looking at what's been happening to Sheffield over quite a long period. But you also show what's happening to the co-op or the former co-op store there. Um, say a little bit about you know where you saw interest in practice, a way, the way that places, whether it's the local authorities or others, were, were encouraging and supporting you know independence, meanwhile use, interim uses, you know, try it, pop-ups, all of these kind of things, try it, um, uh, try it and see, just say a little bit about what, what we can draw from that, give those examples. And is that something that we should be thinking about at a kind of bigger, a bigger scale? Yeah, so I suppose Sheffield is the prime example of a post-retail city. They really had the biggest disaster ever with the um, development of Meadowhall. That completely killed city centres retail offer and it has never recovered uh, it ha now has the same sort of amount of retail as places like Harrogate which is of course a much much smaller um, place so what they've done is really reinvent their city to have the diversity of uses that we talked about you know, you've got two universities theatres uh, etc and, and it's recognised as a very successful you know pleasant place to live now and um, very vibrant with tourism conferences etc cetera, etc cetera. so they have moved past trying to compete i suppose to have all of that retail and a lot of the things that they've done more recently have had a balance in terms of new developments of being office-led retail-led and that's a trend that we've seen more generally as well and including in other places places that were fortunate enough basically to not have their shopping centers built because the timing just meant that it failed that the deal fell through at the last minute a lot of them are realizing now that that's actually a bit of a blessing in disguise because they can rethink what the spread of uses uh, can be in that. Um, but yeah, in terms of other examples of good practice, so in Sheffield, you've got Commune, which was the co-op, the massive co-op department store, which has now been repurposed as an independent food hall. Um, and examples that you'll see of that sort of similar thing elsewhere as well. Uh, then we've got Bobby's in Bournemouth, which was another huge um, bit of infrastructure, which an individual uh, entrepreneur took on. He recognised that one of the big opportunities just now is that existing retail space can be bought for a lot, lot less than it can be built. So small developers actually can step in, a sort of new breed of developer, though, admittedly. And if they are willing to subdivide these spaces, to let them to independence with kind of low commitment, low cost options to be in with, nurture them, be very responsive to their needs, there is a proven viable business model there where you can redevelop these spaces. Um, yes, but you can see examples like Bobby's where that, that then provides a very vibrant outcome as well. Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to get your thought on, because it appears in the book, but again, I think you you treat it in, in the right way, is the, um, the, you know, there's been an emphasis on markets, right? I mean, in a sense, either open air markets or closed markets or semi-open, semi-closed markets, et cetera. Just say a little bit about, 
about that, how that features in your thinking, you know, in a sense, it, it, I think it got to the point, maybe from my own interpretation, that the future of the high street is you, if you don't have a market, you've got no chance. You know, I, I'm not saying that, that that was quite like that, but it did feel like that for a period. Um, oh. and so just say a little bit about, about where markets fit, how prominent, how should we think about them, uh, you know, going forward? Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting observation you've made. I think that's one of two things that's been very popular as a solution in recent times. Markets, and the other one I would chuck in is um, environmental improvements, sort of beautifying the high streets, so like new paving, signage, planting, yeah, etc. Um, and, you know, I mean, probably in most or all cases, none, neither of these things is going to hurt, um, but they're not going to solve the problems by themselves. I mean, there's much more fundamental issues underpinning why you have high levels of vacancy. Um, so it it depends, I suppose, is the is the awkward answer I'm going to give you. It depends on the place, um, whether that's appropriate or not. Sadly, there just isn't a one-size-fits-all solution. There are lots of issues, including scale of place, but location is also a big, big factor. So... You could look at even if we just you know focusing on towns, you could have like Wisbech and Penzance that are very isolated to big crowded towns like Berry, Paisley, Skipton, Todmorden. Some of the latter have struggled to compete with larger neighbours, while others have attracted the sort of affluent commuters and used that um, and leveraged that spending power to spur regeneration. Mm. Um, you might think actually that smaller towns are the ones that are going to be struggling, but in fact, the data suggests the opposite is true. It's not just a matter of size. The vacancy rates uh, are highest in small cities and large towns. Mm. So they're, you know, perhaps more, uh, the, the, the small towns village is not so reliant on major multiples, so a bit insulated. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not quite so simple as just build a market and it will all be fine you know that and, and in a way that's just a way of fostering independence as well because market stores tend to be low commitment um along with things like pop-ups and what have you so it, it can be part of the solution but it's not going to fix things wholesale by itself yeah and and i think you know it that touches on you know the point you made earlier on i think some of our work suggests um something similar which is yes you know you need to think about reorientation of on the consumption side you know what from retail to hospitality to you know what however you mix these sort of entertainment things up but part of the past part of it is also you know crudely how you think about you get other uses in that are creating uh footfall creating wealth you know whether that's office or type you know, other commercial activity that brings people in often to work. And then they, you know, they they raise their money there and they spend it, you know, in the local shop or the local bar or the local restaurant or the local gym, uh, whatever it is. They might happen to live locally as well. So, you know, it's thinking about not just recutting the consumption bit of uh, the high street, but actually supplementing the the consumption bit with a bit of production, if I, you know, if I could, if I could sort of frame it like that. Yeah, certainly. I mean, one of the things that also you've, you sort of uh, almost touched on there is that this moves towards work from home, hybrid working um, that were accelerated by COVID have some positive impact as well. It's meant that a lot of um, less central high streets, local high streets, um, suburban high streets have actually done really well where the local businesses have embraced that. You know, there's fewer people doing a weekly shop at a big supermarket now. Partly that's because of reduced car ownership. 
um, and more people working from home during the week where they're more, much more likely to pop out, get their lunch locally, to do a sort of bit of food shopping every couple of nights instead or on their way home. So some there are some great examples of suburban and local high streets that have really thrived off the back of that trend. Yeah. OK, let's um, let's let's sort of change tax slightly to, and, and explore explore other issues, but two sort of structural regulation uh, features. So first one is around um, planning, which we talked a little about a bit earlier on, but just let's get back into that. And then let's get on to um, uh, business rates and business rates reform. You and I have kind of talked about this in different places uh, uh, on these sorts of issues. So just just say a little bit about you know the, the way that the planning system does or doesn't enable and encourage adaptation and change. You've got you've got a kind of thought, particular set of thoughts on permitted development rights, which may be counterintuitive to the need for change and the need for adaptation. So I'm not going to put words in your mouth. You you just say a little bit about <laughs> about that, and then we'll have and then we'll move on to the you know the business rates question, which is also about the cost of being on the high street crudely. Yeah, so I suppose there's two points mainly in terms of planning policy. One we've already discussed, which is this demand for out-of-town development, which is not particularly great at the moment, but we need to ensure that there's really strong planning policy underpinning uh, the moves that local authority can make to essentially block any further out-of-town development, because with limited demand for retail, limited uh, business opportunities, you've got to decide where you want this stuff to happen, basically. And we've learned that out-of-town retail development, but other things too, just absolutely sucks the life out of nearby places. So it's kind of obvious, yeah, we need some planning policy that's going to back that up, like we did in the early 2000s um, with that huge wave of retail investment in town malls were developed, et cetera, et cetera. Then in terms of the permitted development rights, um, so the UK's planning response to the current crisis has been to relax planning policy in this respect. Uh, in 2020, the new use class E was introduced, um, which includes basically everything. Every town centre use shops, financial, professional services, cafes, restaurants, healthcare facilities, you know, nurseries, indoor sports, fitness, et cetera, et cetera. The only thing that doesn't really include is bars um, and takeaways. In Epsom, one of our case studies, that change really massively undermined a town centre planning policy they had at a local level, which was protecting retail frontages that had been credited with helping regenerate the town centre. Then in 2021, permitted development rights were extended so that um, anything in that Class E, which was almost everything, um, could be converted to housing uh, with prior approval. So instead of it just being a case of converting converting one commercial use to another commercial use with relative ease, you can now convert commercial use to residential use. It is sensible to ensure that vacant units don't stay vacant. There are lots of ways we might do that, um, but especially to avoid that being blocked by planners being unwilling to sort of countenance a change of use. We didn't find any evidence of that in these case studies, though it has to be said. Um, that's fact, the critique, right? In a sense, you know, mm. the critique of the government of the, you know, of the, the introducers of those policies would say, we've had to do this because places are resistant to change. They don't want things, you know, they've always thought about it being like that. They always wanted to be like that. They spend an awful lot of time looking for another version of that. And what yeah. they really need is this. And if they won't do it, we'll create a set of regs that 
enable it to you know to happen yes i think our position though um based on the research is that it actually needs the opposite <laughs> that in order for local authorities to curate that change in an appropriate way they actually need better more positive planning rather than less planning control so um essentially if if you allow such uh freedom to change vacant units into residential use in the wrong places um then you're going to end up potentially with a much worse situation you know, where you have um town centers interspersed with dead retail franchises converted former shops that can actually reduce the attractiveness reduce retail footfall even further rather than liven it so what we need is a mechanism to enable the conversion of surplus retail to other uses but preferably be replaced with a more profitable use um or at the very least be able to select where is appropriate more kind of clearly for residential uses so that's that's the sort of planning regs side i, I suppose part that relates on to the ability to to adapt and from a financial point of view to allow you know something to go from one use to the next use and that yeah. you know that reflects you know and needs to be reflected in prices and costs however you think about them and that that then relates to you know the concerns and questions about particularly business rates the system in general but then obviously yeah. the process by which it doesn't allow adaptation and change because it's clunky and it's out of date and it creates an unfair playing fields, et cetera. Just say a little bit more about, you know, what, what would, what's your, what's the problem and then what do we do about it? With business rates. Yeah. Yeah. So business rates for the uninitiated uh, is the rate at which a business is taxed on uh, based on a property's rateable value. So it's property-based tax. Um, it's important um, to note the fundamental thing here, which is that if we don't uh, address the risk of business rates, then any initiative at a local level to improve the high street risks being completely undermined. For many retailers, we found in our case studies that their business rates were significantly higher than their rent, which is frankly unsustainable. Um, the delayed 2017 business rates reevaluation hit big retailers, the major multiples actually particularly hard. Um, and did contribute, we would say, clearly to the retail crisis. The example we'd point to in particular is maybe Beale's department store, uh, which was a chain of department stores, actually, where the chief exec told us that the 2.8 million rates bill they had was the main reason that the company couldn't be saved. Uh, and some of its 23 stores, actually, the rates bill was 10 times the rent, which is eye-watering. The fundamental issues are that there's a lag in the system because it's property value based. So it's always out of date. It's always based on a previous valuation. But also they really disproportionately impact physical retailers. In other words, people with shops on high streets uh, rather than online retailers. So if you want to have physical retailers, which apparently everyone says they do, that needs to be balanced out somehow. It's not terribly simple to see how you're going to deal with this. Apart from anything else, because it's a key funding source for local councils, business rates are set nationally, but the funding goes to the local authority. So, of course, as we all know, local authorities financially in a bad spot at the moment, like like all of us. So um, that has to be addressed at the same time. The recent announcement in the Orton statement um, has sort of in some ways just kind of kept the status quo 
There was a relief in this 2022 autumn statement by then Chancellor Rishi Sunak, um, largely because retail rateable values had fallen. And in 2023, just a few weeks ago, um, Jeremy Hunt confirmed that the standard, standard multiplier rates on high value properties will increase in line with inflation uh, after a three year freeze. So that's obviously going to impact some people enormously, billions of pounds. The small business multiplier stays frozen um, and with a discount, but a discount doesn't apply to the major multiples, which are, of course, a huge employer apart from anything else. And everyone's already facing uh, reduced consumer spending and rising national living wage, these sorts of things. So it's it's really compounding the pressure and not making any big moves to reform the system, which I think, you know, it's been acknowledged needs to happen. The Treasury Select Committee acknowledged that uh, previously as well. So we need to think differently about how we tax businesses and retailers in particular. Yeah, and there's been various um, recommendations on that. I mean, I think one of the points that you've made it elsewhere, and and we've written about this, which is um, particularly on the the revaluation process. We need to move. If we, I mean, we could do it. Other countries have done it. Netherlands being an example, you could move quite easily to an. You know, it wouldn't be done overnight, but you could move to annual revaluations, which would at least deal with some of the 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 problems of you know the property value being frozen in time particularly as you go through um quite significant changes in values uh you know from peak to trough and such so you could definitely do that which it doesn't address the level you know if it's too much but at least it it brings it closer into um into the economic cycle i suppose will be you know will be one way to try and think about uh, about that i don't know what you you know what your thoughts are on that uh lucy yeah, I mean, there's quite a few alternatives. Of course, all have advantages and disadvantages. Um, it could include a sales tax. Yeah. So the goods or services are directly taxed at a certain rate. Be quite easy to administer, um, but of course, can fluctuate and maybe impact low-income groups uh, disproportionately. Could look at an income-based tax. So it's levied against the profits that a business makes rather than the value of the property, which would provide a more stable income, perhaps could discourage investment. Um, a local business tax is another option based on revenue, um, which might, of course, be unfair if you've got limited profits because gross and net doesn't necessarily match up. Um, or local authorities could have a greater scope to have sort of licensing fees for certain types of use or fees for services and infrastructure like refuge collection. Uh, so, so there's a number of different options. And in reality, of course, it, it probably isn't just one silver bullet. We maybe need to move to a more diverse spread of ways in which local authorities uh, recoup costs and are funded by the businesses that are successful in their area. But certainly continuing as we are is definitely not a viable option. And we need some action on that pretty quickly. And part of your sort of argument, I mean, which, again, I I would have some sympathies with, which is, um, you know, there are there are a broader set, the broader set of benefits uh, that society gets from having, you know, vibrant, dynamic localities and high streets and mix of uses, et cetera, et cetera. They're not just strictly commercial in the sense of, you know, being having a shop to, you know, to go and buy whatever you want to buy. There, there are broader public benefits. And therefore, you know, we have to think about high streets in that context, which then means, 
you know, that we might need to create a tax system or a funding system or a planning system that recognizes those broader public benefits and encourages more of them relative to other sorts of things. It's not just simply saying, where is it better to have a shop on the high street or in an out of town retail center, right? I mean, those two things are not comparable from a broader public benefits argument. It, it, that's That's the kind of argument, right? Yeah, I mean, there's two ways of looking at, at it, but both of them kind of lead you to the same conclusion. One is that the state of a high street or a town centre has a direct impact on that community, on the perception of that place, and in turn on confidence in that place. Um, but economically, of course, as well, you know, local economy is very dependent on the success of these places. So, so either way, there's uh, a necessity to prioritise this, and it was very encouraging to see it quite prominently on the agenda for both uh, Conservatives and Labour and their party conferences recently um, in very different ways, perhaps. So so it, it does need to be at the forefront at the moment. And I know a lot of local authorities are stepping forward, being quite progressive, being quite bold, seeing that they need to step in and um, protect assets, protect confidence in their local town centre, doing things that might seem to some slightly extreme or unexpected, like buying up their local shopping centre themselves, um, taking on management of that, um, in addition to much smaller scale stuff like pop-ups or taking on a lease themselves because landlords, retail landlords, very, very um, reluctant to lease to independents. They see them as inherently risky. So, so some councils have actually taken on the lease and will sublet it themselves. All sorts of things um, like that that push forward a more kind of public interest, public investment, public intervention, perhaps in uh, towns and city centres that has been long needed for a, a good long while now. But also sort of some other options include different retail development models that aren't so dependent on local authorities. Um, so for, for one, um, the retailers that we looked at where there's more of a kind of reorientation towards independence, nurturing independence, not so dependent on prelets to major multiples, um, which, you know, is the base for viability at the moment. Um, and, and addressing the issues with malls, both in town and out of town, where there's a reluctance to drop rents because it's tied directly to the capital valuation and therefore the shareholder price, um, which is why you see a lot of places that stay vacant when you would think that it'd be easy to let them. Yeah. And, um, Getting getting out of that or getting through that problem is is quite difficult to deal with. Not least, as you say, because some of those um, some of those um, investors or companies holding those assets, for example, are, have investors themselves that maybe are pension funds, etc. Which are our pension funds, and you know, write, writing down asset values and all the rest of it has a whole host of different uh, and complicated implications. Right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Um. I, I want to. We, I could talk to you for hours on this on this subject and the book itself, but I want to finish um, by just getting your thoughts because in the book, which always gets a massive tick uh, from me, um, you reference uh, Jane Jacobs, which is always a good thing to do. Uh, you can't go wrong if you, if, particularly if you reference her in the right way rather than necessarily uh, in the wrong way, which occasionally happens. Um, but I think the point, um, and you're talking about her idea. Uh, which is about new ideas need old buildings. And sometimes old ideas can use new buildings, but definitely new ideas need old buildings, which touches on a kind of bigger part, just get your thoughts on about 
literally the layout of some of the high streets that you've observed in some of those town centres where, you know, some of them have suffered quite dramatic, relatively recent physical changes to their look, you know, to the way that they're laid out. Some essentially haven't changed for, you know, for very long time, certainly centuries, if not uh, not longer longer than that. Just say a little bit about, you know, how you thought about that, how you how those how that physical layout played out in the in the case studies that you were looking at what does that tell us about you know wholesale comprehensive redevelopment which may be done for the best of intentions at the time but maybe doesn't quite have the desired outcomes when we when we look back at some of those things that happened yes indeed i mean in an ideal world we would learn from the mistakes that we've made historically wouldn't we um i think that there's again a huge variety you know there's places like um, you know, prosperous historic towns like Winchester, Guildford, Harrogate, Chester, um, that are struggling to accommodate modern retailing in very beautiful uh, but constrained town centres. Um, and the issue there that recurs through our case studies has been the drive, therefore, to build new shopping centres to provide modern units to accommodate those mainstream retailers, a time when those retailers are collapsing. Then you've got like new towns like Milton Keynes, Cumbran, Corby, uh, Coventry, Winsford. And those were conceived by 60s and 70s architects and planners um, presenting really different challenges. You know, and their town centres are essentially a big shopping mall, so full of major multiples that have collapsed. Um, then you've got like industrial towns like Barnsley, Doncaster, Wolverhampton, um, what we call red wall seats. So those places, people have become really disillusioned. Uh, with boarded up shops and town centres. Then perhaps you stretch it to look at like Liverpool One, which is an unusual example of where a new shopping centre has been built in town. Uh, it doesn't have walls, doesn't really have a roof, essentially restores a kind of his, what, what would have been the historic street pattern. So it encourages footfall, um, which is an important factor when we get down to spatial design of these places. But the other key thing to point out here really is that our cities and our towns are absolutely never finished. Um, and this crisis will not be the last crisis on the high street. So what we need to do is not reorient ourselves towards another fixed vision of what the high street will be or should be, but actually think about building for flexibility over time. And that also means things like small and medium sized units rather than large units, which are inherently more flexible, easier to relet to different uh, tenants. And so that's a kind of good common sense approach, really, from an urbanist perspective and, and aligns with those kind of principles, but is also supported by the evidence and the trends in, in the data at the moment. Brilliant. Fantastic note on which to, to, to finish. Uh, my guest today has been uh, Lucy Montague. Lucy, thanks for being part of City Talks. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you for listening to this episode of City Talks brought to you by Centre for Cities. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher by searching Centre for Cities. Please rate, review and subscribe if you liked what you heard. You can also follow the Centre on Twitter at Centre for Cities or like us on LinkedIn for the latest updates on what the Centre is up to. If you have any comments on the episode or suggestions for topics we should cover in the future, we'd love to hear from you. Do tweet us or send an email to info at centreforcities.org. The music was from Palace Fires by Johnny Foreigner. Use with permission and all rights are reserved.